Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Now when I mention the following names... I want you to think about what automatically comes to your minds. Helen Keller, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, and Homer. These aren't just soul singers and poet writers. These are all famous people in history who were either visually impaired or who were blind. Louis Braille became blind when he accidentally stabbed himself in the eye with his father's awl. And later, he became the inventor and designer of Braille, which is a wonderful thing that helps visually impaired people be able to read. It's got the bumped up um, language that's on there called Braille that allows blind people to be able to read. Anybody ever heard of Marla Runyon? Marla Runyon was a marathon runner, and she is legally blind. She's a three-time national champion in the women's 5,000 meters, and she placed eighth in the 1,500 meter in the 2000 Sydney Olympics, making her the first legally blind athlete to compete in the Olympics and the highest finish by any American woman in that event. Now, I can't even begin to think about what it would be like to be blind or to be visually impaired. The things that you enjoy just by being able to see. And one of the most important things we value, I think, and we take for granted is, I woke up today and I can see. I can see the blue sky. I can see myself in the mirror. Now, that may not be a good thing for some of you. Um, Not naming names or anything, but um, it may not be a good thing. But we have all these major accomplishments today to help us be able to see. We've got LASIK. We've got contact lenses. We've got high-powered glasses. Anybody ever heard of the Argus II? It's a retinal implant known as the bionic eye. It's used for people with severe blindness. Now, if you want to go out and get this, it came on the market in 2013. So if you want to go out and get the bionic eye, um, here's how much it's going to cost you. $150,000. And that's just for the bionic eye, not the cost of implanting it into your eye in, in the surgery. It's interesting that many experts believe that with all the scientific advances, there could come a day in the near future when blindness is a thing of the past. That people may be able to actually overcome blindness. Now, why do I bring up blindness, eyes, seeing? Famous people that are blind. Well, we come today to Luke chapter 18, and it's the narrative account of Jesus with the blind beggar. Now, in Mark's gospel, he has a name. He's called Bartimaeus. In Luke, he's just called the blind beggar. He doesn't have a name. Now, think about this blind man. Never seen a sunset. Never seen his parents, never seen the smile on a child's face. Now, I'm looking out this morning, and I see baby, 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 all these babies. 
and the smile on the baby's face. Never seen that. Never seen the twinkle in the eye of someone that he loved. He lived in blindness. But there's something going on more in this story than just physical blindness. Luke draws our attention here to an issue related to spiritual blindness. And Luke wants us to go deeper into the realities of what it means to trust Christ as Savior. Now, what did we see last week? Last week, we left off with Jesus' brutal prediction of his death in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus says, I have set my face like flint to go to Jerusalem. When I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be spat upon, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be made fun of, and I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to rise again. But I've got to go to Jerusalem. And so on God's timetable, yes, Jesus has got to go to Jerusalem, but before he does that, he goes through the city of Jericho. And as we'll see the next few weeks, the people that Jesus meets in Jericho. So let's pick up in verse 35 and let's read the account of the blind beggar. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, said to him, Recovery, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. At first glance, this just looks like Jesus has an encounter with the blind beggar. But as we look deeper into the realities of this narrative, we see a picture of salvation. How Jesus saves sinners. A beautiful picture. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to explore four, four truths that you see emerge from this passage of Scripture that tell us about how Jesus loves to save sinners. So there's something deeper going on here than just Jesus healing a blind man. So here's the first thing we see. First, you and I must acknowledge your wretchedness as a helpless sinner. Now, that's not a good place to start, is it? Acknowledge your wretchedness as a helpless sinner. Now, what do we learn about this man that teaches us about salvation? He is blind, and he's sitting on the roadside. He is marginalized, he's ostracized, he's a beggar on the side of the road. And yet Jesus comes to him, and Jesus shows compassion to him. Now think about the comparison to this blind beggar to who we saw a few weeks ago in the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler had everything. He was prominent. He was popular. He had wealth. He was the cream of the crop. 
that this blind beggar is ostracized. He's marginalized. He's on the roadside. He's a beggar. He's blind. And that's who Jesus loves to reach. Jesus loves to invest in those who are the outcast, who are the beggars, who are sidelined, who are marginalized, who are needy, who in the culture's eyes would look at and say, that man is wretched. That man's a beggar. That man's blind. And Bartimaeus, this man, we know he's Bartimaeus from Mark's gospel. He was physically blind, could not see. Okay, but what does the Bible tell us about us before our salvation? The Bible says that before Christ saved us, we were spiritually blind. Not physically blind, but spiritually blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In our sinful state before Christ saved us, we were spiritually blinded to the glories of Christ. We had spiritual blinders on our eyes that prevented us from seeing Jesus in all of his glory. And not only is this man physically blind, but he's a beggar. He has to beg for money. He's on the roadside begging. In those days, there was really no jobs for people that were physically handicapped, so he had to be relegated to to asking people for money. He's a beggar. The Bible describes us before our salvation as spiritually bankrupt beggars in our guilt and sin isaiah 64 6 says we've all become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds our righteous deeds the good things we do are like a polluted garment we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away even the good things that we try to do to somehow stack up in god's good graces no matter how many good things we do they're like a polluted garment we are spiritually bankrupt before a holy god romans 3 10 through 12 paul says as it is written No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the the picture that we see of of the human condition before Christ saves us is that we are spiritually blind and we are spiritually bankrupt in need of a Savior. And this man's desperate. He's crying out. He didn't care what other people thought about him. He's crying out to Jesus. He has this overwhelming sense of his need. And our need is greater than his. His need was physical sight. Our need is spiritual salvation from our sins. You see, before you can understand your salvation, you have to understand the depth of the depravity and the wretchedness that you really were in before God saved you. The sewer of filth and guilt and unholiness and depravity that defines us to the core of our being. We must truly see ourselves as what we are without Christ. And I say this often. What are we without Christ? We are helpless, we are hopeless, and we are hell-bound without Jesus. 
Think about the lyrics to Amazing Grace. You know those. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. We'll come back to that in a moment. A wretch. Blind. A wretch. You know who wrote that, don't you? John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Now, why did he call himself a wretch? He was a foul-mouthed, angry young man and a slave trader. He was on a slave ship. A slave ship left England in 1748. And on this slave ship, there were 600 slaves, most of them dying from smallpox, and they were just thrown overboard. And John Newton, as this young, angry man who's in the slave industry, he's on this boat, he's on this ship, and somehow he finds a book about Jesus. He finds a Christian book, and he begins reading this book, and he gets under great conviction. And then a thunderstorm happens, and the boat is being tossed and turned, and he's thinking to himself, if this boat goes down, I'm going to hell because I'm a wretch. And it's in those moments that he understood his sin on that boat that he cried out to Jesus for salvation. And he was saved on a slave ship as a slave trader. This was what was written on his tombstone. Or not not on his tombstone. This is what he said at his deathbed. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That's, that's, that sums up the Christian life, doesn't it? I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. He saved a wretch like me. I was a slave trader. I was an angry young man. I was a foul-mouthed bigot. And God saved me by amazing grace is what John Newton would say. So the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture is this this blind beggar is a picture of our condition before salvation. We're spiritually blind. We're spiritually bankrupt. We are desperate. We We are wretched in need of salvation. But let's look at the second thing. Okay, well, how do you get out of this situation? You must cry out to Jesus for mercy. Notice what the man cries out twice. Okay, in verse 38, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He cried out. Now, that's the normal Greek word for crying out. It just means to raise your voice. He raised his voice, have mercy on me. Okay, but the second time, the second time in verse 39, it says, he cried out all the more. That's a very rare Greek word. I, I want to teach you this word because if I teach it to you in, in English, if you hear it like kind of in English, you'll understand it. Okay, so, so repeat after me. Here's the Greek word. Kratzo! Okay, I got your attention, right? <laughs> You're awake now. <laughs> that word, kratzo, it means to shriek like an animal, to cry out with angst and a visceral yell. 
So this, this man's crying out from the depth of his heart, a guttural, piercing shriek, and he cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me, and I'm sure it pierced the air. He's crying out, have mercy on me. Now, he needed his sight, and he's probably asking Jesus to recover his sight and have mercy on him, but Jesus would give him more than what he asked for. You see, when we understand our wretchedness, we understand what we deserve. What do we deserve? Wrath. Hell. Condemnation. Do we deserve mercy? No, we don't deserve mercy. We cry out for mercy because what we deserve is condemnation. And God is not obligated to forgive us. I love Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Habakkuk says, O Lord... I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That should be the prayer of every person before a holy God. In wrath, remember mercy. God, I deserve wrath. I deserve hell, but I'm crying out. I'm pleading. I'm from the depths of my heart. I'm crying out. Have mercy on me me. I need mercy. Do you remember King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah killed. Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, you to man. David, broken before a holy God, goes and writes Psalm 51. How does Psalm 51 start? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says, have mercy on me, I've sinned. This man cries out, have mercy on me. Now, it's interesting, in verse 41, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Does a man ask for riches? Does a man ask for a million dollars? Does a man ask for political power? No. He basically says, I want my sight. And that's what we should cry out to the Lord as well. Not, Jesus, I need sight, but Jesus, I need salvation. I'm a wretch that needs saved from my sins. In other words, Jesus, I need my spiritual eyes opened. I need the blinders to come off that Satan has placed upon me, and I need to be able to see my my need of you, Jesus, and I need to cry out to you for mercy. Please rescue me. And God does this deep work in our hearts to overcome our spiritual blindness. God, ha- if you're a Christian here today, God has done this work. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, what has God done in your heart? Satan has blinded you, but 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's like the day of creation when God said, let there be light. He took the darkness that was in our hearts and shone the light in there, took the blinders off so that we could for the very first time see. I once was blind, but now I see. Paul prays for this in Ephesians 1.18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The eyes of your heart opened. Helen Keller, famous blind lady in American history, poet, writer, someone asked her a question one day. He said, isn't it terrible to be blind? And listen to her answer. It's a famous quote by Helen Keller. She says, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. As wretched sinners before a holy God, we can have two good eyes physically and see nothing. We can think that we're okay before a holy God. We're good to go. We're not as wretched as we are. We're not as bad as the guy down the street. It's not until God does that deep work of grace to open your spiritual eyes, that deep transformation, that you can truly see your need for Jesus. What I find fascinating in this account is the tenderness of Jesus. What's on Jesus' mind? What has he just told his disciples? I'm going to Jerusalem to get killed. I'm sure... We can't get into the emotional nature of Jesus because sometimes the Bible doesn't give us that, but, but think about all the things that are on the heart and mind of our Savior as he's going to Jerusalem. Heavy things. And yet he has enough time to stop and tell the people, listen, you guys are rebuking this man for crying out. Bring him to me. I'm going to take time for this marginalized man. Bring him to me. I'm going to give this man time. I'm going to give this man attention. I'm going to give this man a focus. And the question is pretty obvious. Verse 40, Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? That's kind of a weird question. Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Well, duh, Jesus, we know what the answer is. He wants to have his sight recovered. Why did Jesus ask the man, what do you want me to do for you? Had you ever thought that maybe nobody had ever asked that man a question where he could actually talk and verbalize? Do you think Jesus was doing that to show this man dignity and honor? I think Jesus was basically stopping and asking the man, what do you want me to do for you so that the man himself could have the dignity to verbalize and confess before Jesus his need for sight? The beggar is openly confessing his need for mercy and the trust in the power of Jesus to heal him. Remember Jesus' first sermon? I know it's a long time ago back when we were in Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes out of his baptism, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, he sits down, he opens the scroll, he begins to read from Isaiah. What does Jesus read in his very first public sermon? Luke 4, 18-19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is doing that right here, what he came to do. He's doing more than just recovering sight to the blind. He's actually bringing the good news of the gospel of salvation to this man who needs more than just sight. 
He needs salvation. He needs mercy in the sense of being saved from his sins. So what's the third thing we see? First, you've got to own up to your wretchedness. And number two, you need to cry out for mercy. But number three, you must place your faith in Christ alone. Now, you don't quite get this in your English translations, but in verse 43, I'm sorry, verse 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. The word well there is the word we get salvation. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've been saved by faith. You've been saved by faith. You've placed your faith in me, and thus you've been saved. Not just recovered your sight, but there's a play on words there that Luke's using. You've been saved. And this is what happens. When God overcomes that spiritual deadness in your heart, He grants you the gift of faith when He makes you alive in Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead... We were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Once you've been made spiritually alive by a sovereign work of our great God, He grants you the gift of faith to be able to cry out to Jesus. So let's ask the question, what is faith? What is faith? There's a lot of confusion out in our world today. How many times have you heard somebody say, you just got to have faith? Okay. Faith in what? Faith in who? What is faith? What is faith? Well, faith consists of three aspects. Historically, if you look at the scriptures, if you look at church history, you can define saving faith with these three aspects, and you see it in this man. In this blind man, you see him exercising the three aspects of saving faith. So let's look at these three aspects of saving faith. So what is saving faith? What does it mean to place your faith in Christ? Okay, here's the first aspect. First, saving faith involves a knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. A knowledge. You've got to have knowledge. You've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to know what he's done. This is more related to the mind. You've got to take in information as to who Jesus is. And it's very interesting. Look at verse 37. What are the people saying? Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Okay, that's his geography. He's from Nazareth. It's this man from Nazareth. But notice what the blind man cried out. You would expect him to say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. But what does he say in verse 38? Jesus, son of David. Did you catch it? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's very unusual. Son of David. That's the first time in the Gospel of Luke up to this point that any human has used the term son of David. Somehow, supernaturally, we don't know, this man understood the Old Testament prophecies about who Jesus truly was. The true son of King David. The true Messiah that would come from the lineage of David. What did the Lord promise King David back in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12? 
David was promised, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, an eternal kingdom. An eternal king would come from David's lineage that would be the true Messiah. And somehow, this blind beggar knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Not just from Nazareth, but Jesus, son of David. What did Gabriel tell Mary? In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. Somehow, this man had the knowledge that Jesus was more than just a traveling miracle worker. He was the Son of David. He was the Messiah. He was the King. He was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. So the first part of saving faith involves knowledge, the mind. You've got to know who Jesus is, what he's done. But that's not enough. A lot of people know who Jesus is and what he's done. A lot of people have taken in information in the mind, and they understand the facts of the gospel account. You have to have that, because it's not just blind faith in, in nothing. It's, it's knowledge, but second... Saving faith involves believing from the heart. Believing from the heart that Jesus alone can save you. It's more personal now. Yes, I have knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, but it takes a step. And second step, it's okay from the heart. I believe he can save me. I believe he's more than just who he says he is. This man, this Messiah, can save me. Uh, John Calvin makes this interesting statement. He says, the word is not received in faith when it merely flutters in the brain, but when it has taken deep root in the heart. What's the distance between the heart and the head, or the head and the heart? They say like 18 inches or something. You can believe in your mind that Jesus exists, but true faith is taking it deep into the heart and believing that it's true for you. Because the demons believe. What does James 2.19 say? You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. The demons have knowledge of who Jesus is. Okay, I want you to notice what this blind man says. He calls Jesus the Messiah, son of David. But notice what else he says. Verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. He calls Jesus Lord. Not only did this blind man understand that Jesus was the Messiah, Savior, but he understands Jesus as Lord. He calls him Lord. How are you saved? What does Paul say in Romans 10, 13? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He understands Jesus as both Savior and Lord. You cannot take Jesus as Savior and not take Him as Lord. You see, oftentimes in today's culture, we, we, we present Jesus as this weak Savior that's knocking at the door of your heart and hoping that somehow you'll let Him in and He's powerless to do anything. And Just try Jesus on for size. Give Him a chance. He's worth it. He'll make your life better. He'll make your marriage better. He'll give you all this stuff. Just give Jesus a chance. Poor Jesus, He's just waiting for you to do something with Him. No, Jesus is absolutely Lord. And he's absolutely Savior. You can't separate those two things. 
A.W. Tozer said, The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe in a half-Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Savior who has mercy on us to save us from our sins, but at the same time, he's the absolute Lord who has control over our lives that we must submit ourselves to. So saving faith involves the mind. Got to know who Jesus is. It involves the heart. We've got to believe in our hearts that he can save me, but there's a third aspect. Third, saving faith involves personal trust in Christ alone. Martin Luther has famously said this, there's a difference between a faith which believes what is said of Christ is true and a faith which throws itself on Christ. You can believe what Jesus said is true and not trust him with your life, not give him your life. Whatever word you want to use, give your life to Christ. Submit your life to Christ. Trust in Christ. You have to, at some point, make the personal choice to give your life to Jesus. So this involves the will. Okay, so saving faith involves the mind. You've got to know who Jesus is. The heart, you've got to believe it from your heart. And then you've got to personally trust. Now, you can't do that unless God first works in you to grant you that gift, but you still have to throw yourselves onto Christ's mercy. John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so you have to receive him. Why did you receive him? Why did you become a child of God? Because you were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God caused you to be born again, and as a result, you trusted in Christ. John 6, 37-39, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Whatever word you want to use, receive Christ, trust Christ, believe in Christ, take hold of Christ, give your life to Christ. There's got to be that point in time where it goes from I know who he is, I know that he can save me, to I'm trusting him with everything because I believe he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's by grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Okay, so let's retrace our steps. I said there's four big tickets, categories this morning. Number one, you've got to know your need. You've got to be desperate. You've got to know that you're a wretch. You've got to know that you're depraved and you need Jesus. Number two, you've got to cry out for mercy because we need mercy. What we deserve is wrath and hell and condemnation. We've got to cry out for mercy. Number three, you've got to personally believe in Jesus. You've got to trust him alone to save you. You've got to call upon him as Savior and Lord. And he will save you as he did to this man. Your faith has made you well. You have been saved by faith. But there's a fourth thing that you see here. Fourth, the fruit of salvation is a lifestyle of joyful obedience. Now, you're not saved by obeying. But the fruit of your salvation is a lifestyle of joyful obedience. Notice what happens immediately when he receives his sight. 
Verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. The word followed there is in a Greek tense that really indicates that it was a lifestyle. It was a, it was a transformed lifestyle. It wasn't like I just followed Jesus once. It was I'm continually following Jesus. I'm, I'm continually trusting in him. And what else does he do? He's glorifying. He's glorifying God. It's a lifestyle of following Jesus, of worshiping Jesus. J.C. Ryle said this, Grateful love is the true spring of real obedience to Christ. If you want to obey Christ, where does it come from? Grateful love. You see, when you realize how wretched you are, and how much you need mercy, and how much Jesus has saved you. And in fact, He does come and save you. He takes the blinders off your eyes. He gives you a new heart. He causes you to be born again. You're forgiven. What's the fruit of that? You say back to Jesus, because of this amazing grace, I now want to live a life of following you. I do this joyfully. I do this glorifying God. It's not begrudging. It's not something I do because I have to do it. No, I want to obey you, Jesus, with a lifestyle of repentance, obedience, surrender, because you have saved me. So as we come to the Lord's Supper today, I want us to come to the Supper with thankfulness and joy, and I want us to be thinking I'm a wretch, but Jesus is a great Savior. I'm a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. What has He taken me out of? What's Jesus saved me from? We read it earlier during our time of prayer. Colossians 1, 13-14. He has delivered us from what? Think about that. What's He delivered us from? The domain of darkness darkness, blindness, wretchedness, spiritual bankruptcy. He's delivered us from that. And where has he taken us? Where has he transferred us to? A new kingdom. What's the kingdom? It's the kingdom of his beloved son. It's the kingdom of Jesus. What's the type of kingdom this is? It's a kingdom where we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We are now in the kingdom of light. We are no longer blind, but now we see. We're no longer wretches, but we're saved by amazing grace. And so when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we do it with joy in our hearts because of the amazing grace and mercy of God who has delivered us from darkness. We are now forgiven children of the King. We now have been showered with mercy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. We do so with joy in our hearts because you have taken wretches like us and made us into children of the King. We were once blind in our depravity, but you have made us see by your glorious grace. So, Lord, we want to be like this blind beggar 
The only response that we have to being transformed by mercy is to follow you and glorify you. And one of the ways that we do that is to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way to remember what you did, Jesus, but also as a way to receive afresh the grace we need to live the Christian life. So, Lord Jesus, would you meet us in the supper? We know it's spiritually through the Holy Spirit because, Jesus, you're seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but through the Holy Spirit, you spiritually minister to our souls when we take the Lord's Supper. We don't know exactly how it all works, but there's a a spiritual aspect to the Lord's Supper where, Jesus, you are feeding us spiritual nourishment because you're the bread of life. So help us to enjoy you and all of your glory and grace this morning as those that were once blind, but now we see. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.